0: from 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in the 10th verse. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God, and welcome back, everybody, to our Catacomb Synod Basics series, where we go over the distinctions between the Catacomb Synod and the rest of Christendom in all of its uh, tragic corruption. Recently, we have been going over Philip Jacob Spanner's *Pia Desideria*, the second foundational text for Pietism as it was originally stated, and why we, in the Catacomb Synod and the Very Lutheran Project, are proud to say that we are confessional pietists. Now that said, he has a section that we're going to skip. Why? Because he has his section called The Possibility of Better Conditions in the Church, in which there are some things that we disagree with uh, regarding Spanner's theology. His eschatology posits a general conversion of all Jews, and we don't think that that's necessarily going to happen. Certainly we hope that that will happen, but ultimately Spanner spends that chapter giving something of a wish list. If things were better in the church, here is where we could be. Truth be told, we have given the Cassus Belly and the dream wish list for the Catacomb Synod more than once. We are a home to every Christian out there who wants to schism now and avoid the rush. We understand that so many denominations have followed after worldly morality, worldly theology. They have bent over backwards to please the devil, whether or not they think that's what they've done. And there are Christians that need a home. So, of course, our wish list, our dream, like Spanner's dream, is to have a church that is purified from that with a better class of laity strengthened and empowered laymen and laywomen who read their scriptures, who follow what the scriptures teach, and ultimately rejoice in the work that God does within all of us. Spener's goal of having the entirety of the church purified, reformed, is nice. It's a wonderful thing to say we want, especially in his era. And him pointing to the early church, which had more stringent requirements on believers, is somewhat commendable. However, here in the 21st century, our goal is to give Christians a place to go, and a way to do church, to practice the faith legitimately, and to hear God's word purely taught and that is where his solutions part three the proposals to correct conditions in the church comes in section one is what we're going to be going over today because it is incredibly important it is the first matter we read from second timothy chapter three not just verses 16 and 17 as us protestants love to read But the preceding verses, back to verse 10, St. Paul cites these virtues that he has. And he cites his steadfastness under persecution. And then he tells St. Timothy, this is what you need for that. You need the word of God. Do you want to be a better Christian? You need the word of God. Do you want to be a more steadfast Christian? You may have noticed that the latter books of the New Testament, the ones written the latest, 2 Timothy, James, Hebrews, Revelation, they all praise and extol steadfastness in the faith. St. Paul says, how do you get there? You get there, of course, by God's help through his word. So if we want to see that in the laity, and if we want to see that among our ministers, if we want a better class of Christians in this world today, then we need the Bible to be the chief foundation of our faith, sola scriptura, and we need to act like it. So Spener opens up his section saying thought should be given to a more extensive use of the word of God among us. We know that by nature we have no good in us. If there is to be any good in us it must be brought about by God. To this end, the word of God is the powerful means, since faith must be enkindled through the gospel, and the law provides the rules for good works, and many wonderful impulses to attain them. As St. Paul says, God's word trains us for righteousness. And he says, the more at home the word of God is among us, the more we shall bring about faith and its fruits. If you are living in the word of God, if you are every single day reading scripture, analyzing it, letting God do his work in you, and continuing to seek greater understanding, this will have amazing effects in your life and walk with our Lord. Now, there are some misconceptions that Spanner wants to clarify, and I think it's high time we reminded the world about this. He says, I do not at all disapprove of the preaching of sermons in which a Christian congregation is instructed by the reading and exposition of a certain text, for I myself do this, but I find that it is not enough. In the first place, we know that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Accordingly, all Scripture, without exception, should be known by the congregation if we are all to receive the necessary benefit. If we put together all the passages of the Bible, which in the course of many years are read to a congregation in one place, they will comprise only a very small part of the scriptures which have been given to us. There is a difference between the readings in the lectionary and a true Bible study. This is actually a Lutheran distinctive going all the way back to Spanner. We have the lectionary, which is selected for preaching for law, gospel, and response. A sermon is not the same as a lecture on the Bible, or somebody doing independent study. A sermon is intended to inspire faith, to correct people's actions, to bring about the repentance of sin, and holding fast to Christ. And that is absolutely essential. But, if somebody goes out and gets a treasury of daily prayer with daily readings for their devotions, And they follow that model, a lectionary model of Bible reading that does not mean that they are getting to know God's Word perfectly, or even to a competent level. I know plenty of people who have spent decades doing assigned daily readings out of the lectionary, and they could not tell you what the book of Ezra is about. What is the book of Nehemiah about? What is Malachi's point? They never get into the nitty-gritty, single book of the Bible, read it, learn it, love it aspect. So we here in the Catacomb Synod, following off of what Spanner is saying, we do hold to the classic one-year lectionary for sermons, yes. But we do book series for Sunday school. We will look at a single book of the Bible and get in detail on it. Now about that, a little bit of the practical aspect of all of this. If you go to verylutheran.biz and you look at the Sunday School materials, you open up a PDF from our current series on the book of James, you might know that I go about it in a little bit of an academic sense. Why do I do that? The leader of a house church should, in all hopefulness, be the most competent Christian in his home congregation. He should be spending the most time in the Word, he should be downloading all the materials first and reading them before everybody else does, and he can adjust the study for the people in his home congregation. I'll go into the Greek of a text, because sometimes the scriptures have a word that is a tough nugget for us moderns. And a house church leader very well may encounter the question, uh, St. James says that selfish ambition is evil, it's demonic, but I've been told to be ambitious my whole life. What does he mean by that? And if the house church leader If the deacon has read his stuff, if he's read my materials, acquainted himself with the text, maybe looked over a commentary in addition, he can say, well, what St. James means by that is an ambition that is mercenary. It's perfectly fine to be ambitious for something, but when you do it for nothing but worldly purposes, or Andrew Tate ambition of, I want fast cars and loose women, or something like that, then it is sinful. The question is, where is your ambition going? He can answer those questions because I've gotten into some of those details anticipating those questions. But if his house congregation isn't ready for something like that, then they can just go over the text, go into the broad themes and messages of the text, and go from there. Not all Christians are as advanced in understanding the word as other Christians, so a house church leader, a deacon, or a lay leader must be well acquainted with this. So the PDFs there are for leadership so they can run the Sunday school as they please, It's also good for an individual Christian to read it on their own and to have a lot of questions answered. By all means, I encourage people to read them solo as well. But how a Bible study is run, whether that's lecture format or if that is participation from the laity in the church, it's all about how the church wants to run itself. What do the people want? Now, there needs to be a house church leader. There needs to be a deacon. Weishbanner writes, Meanwhile, although solitary reading of the Bible at home is in itself a splendid and praiseworthy thing, it does not accomplish enough for most people. You need to have somebody that can help supervise your reading. If a man with no training in how to read the scriptures, if he does not understand that we follow the plain meaning of the text, and if he does not understand that scripture interprets scripture, that man is in danger of coming to some deadly conclusions. This is where cults come from. This is where wayward denominations come from. Somebody who follows solo scriptura, rather than sola scriptura. It is good to read scripture on your own. Absolutely. Make no mistake, I want everybody reading their Bible every day. But if you are not a trained pastor, a trained deacon, if you are not in the Word for the sake of others, there are hazards, so it is good to have somebody you can go to well, with iron sharpening iron, they can serve as a check against our sinful flesh's impulse to misunderstand the word. But, again, private reading is fantastic. As Spanner says, this might be done, first of all, by diligent reading of the Holy Scriptures, especially of the New Testament. It would not be difficult for every house father to keep a Bible or at least a New Testament handy and read from it every day or if he cannot read, to have somebody else read. How necessary and beneficial this would be for all Christians in every station of life was splendidly and effectively demonstrated a century ago by other writers, as he goes into that. What's the point of this? We need Christians who absolutely swim in the word of God. We need Christians who are passionate about the word solo, as individuals, as much as they are passionate about sharing the word with others and going over the word with others. So Spanner also writes, a second thing would be desirable in order to encourage people to read privately, namely, that where the practice can be introduced, the books of the Bible be read one after another at specified times in the public service without further comment unless one wished to add brief summaries. This is something we do in our Wednesday night Bible study streams. We're going over the book of Job. We read giant chunks of Job, and then I comment on it. We need private Bible reading as much as public Bible reading. God's promises about the transforming nature of his word and the precious truths that he gives us are something that should be celebrated universally in the church with every Christian being passionate about it. Now that said, while individual catacomb synod, house congregations, have the right and the freedom to run Sunday schools and Wednesday night Bible studies however they please, Spinner writes, anybody who is not satisfied with his understanding of a matter should be permitted to express his doubts and seek further explanation. What does he mean by this? Bible studies should be interactive. There should be a point where a man can raise up his hand and say, I've got a question, can we talk about this, X, Y, or Z? And women should be able to ask their husbands about this at home, as St. Paul directs in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Now, most importantly, and this is for our leaders in our house churches, for all you deacons out there, we discussed this last night, not a little benefit is to be hoped for from such an arrangement. Preachers would learn to know the members of their own congregations and their weakness or growth in doctrine and piety. There are two questions that most pastors hate to ask especially in biblical churches it's a two questions that frustrate everybody and think that we have devolved into some sort of subjectivity I'm here to tell you today that I love these two questions and I love what they do for us if they are properly asked the first question is how does this verse make you feel the second question is what does this verse mean to you those are good questions to ask for a deacon or a minister in his church. You should be asking everybody in your laity during a Bible study, what does this verse mean to you and how does this verse or passage make you feel? Why? First and foremost, regarding feelings, we understand that the law has an effect on people. The gospel has an effect on people when St. James says, Mourn and wail, you sinners, a proper response to that should be, Yeah, he's right, I'm a sinner. And yeah, I should be sad about this. On the other hand, if I'm asked how I feel about that verse, and I say, Oh man, whoever James was writing to was a pretty bad group of people, you know what, I, I don't relate to it. Well then maybe the law isn't doing its work on my heart, or I am not perceiving the law's work on my heart. I'm not saying we should trust our emotions like the enthusiasts do, but it can be a good litmus test if law and gospel are truly working on our heart. Meanwhile, the question of what does this verse mean to you is a great litmus test for me to hear somebody answer that question and see if they're paying attention. Are they understanding how they should be reading their Bible? Do they agree with me? Is there something I missed in that? Maybe their answer could edify the congregation if they saw something I missed, or if they don't understand it quite well, then their answer is an opportunity for me to correct that and help them walk further in the faith. So next time somebody says, Oh, I hate those questions. How does this verse make you feel? Oh my gosh, women's Bible study, I ran it once and it just devolved into an hour and a half conversation about an ex-husband. Oh, it's just the worst. Well, okay, that's asking the question with the wrong intent. Spanner says preachers could know the members of their congregation to measure their weakness or growth in doctrine and piety and questions like that. In fact, the whole point of Sunday School help us to understand how they are advancing in the faith. How is their sanctification going? If we want a better church, we need to start by getting better Christians, and if we have better Christians who love the word of God and breathe it like it is the very air we breathe, then the church being reformed is just going to happen on its own. Spinner writes, This much is certain, the diligent use of the word of God, which consists not only of listening to sermons, but also of reading, meditating, and discussing, Psalm 1 verse 2, must be the chief means for reforming something, whether this occurs in the proposed fashion or in some other appropriate way. The word of God remains the seed from which all that is good in us must grow. If we succeed in getting the people to seek eagerly and diligently in the book of life for their joy, their spiritual life will be wonderfully strengthened and they will become Altogether different people. All of the corrupt conditions that we see in the church today, the same corrupt conditions that were around in the 16th and 17th centuries, are ultimately contradictions of the word of God. We see what the word of God says, and we see people acting contrary to that word, whether that's teachers or laity it's everywhere. Deeply unbiblical beliefs and behavior. Severe deficiencies in doctrine and piety. Since that is the case, betrayals of the word of God and sins against what God tells us we must believe and do, then holding to God's word, Living God's word, learning God's word, and holding it close to our hearts as much as humanly possible is going to correct that. If you just read over Psalm 119, you will see that the scriptures praise the effects of the word of God upon our very souls. And that's what people need. That is what fixes things. That's what gets people into God's word and following it. Now, I know somebody will say, what about misinterpretations? What about all these cults that start when some dude starts reading the Bible and uh, he decides he's got whack job heresies just swarming in his satchel and he spreads it to other people? Well, what corrects that, beloved? Truly understanding the word of God getting real teaching in. All heresies and all heterodoxies come from people that are either misunderstanding the word or speaking where God has not spoken, whether that's through enthusiasm or rationalism or some combination of the two. Getting the straight understanding of Scripture gives us the opportunity to correct that as well as prevent it from happening. Truth be told, if we were all just in love with the Bible the way God wants us to be, holding to his words, studying it, and following what it says plainly, cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons would never have shown up in the first place. None of these heretics would ever have had an audience Well, okay, maybe two or three people would have followed them, but they wouldn't be the masses of millions that we see today following the likes of Joseph Smith or Mary Baker Eddy. With that said, though, you might notice there is an emphasis on laity, and next week we're going to get into that as we start discussing the universal priesthood and going further into exercising it than modern Lutheran churches do today. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.